0: So we're going to jump right into it. All right. And Joe, so I've been thinking about something lately. I was listening to a comedy special, and in this comedy special, they were talking about the relationship between art and culture. Generally speaking, we can t- be talking about specifically the art that you're involved in in the more conventional sense, but mm-hmm. dance, music, mm-hmm. poetry, writing. Well, right. There's, there's a, a list, and I'd love to get your take on it. Art seems to interact with culture. And culture seems to affect art. And there's this relationship that occurs. It occurs in a very lively way. It occurs in in a way that like an organism reacts to its environment if you think about animals or plants, biology, stuff like that. So it it very much seems to be a a living, breathing entity. And so as somebody who is an artist and who's spent many decades involved in that field. I'm curious your take, um, especially starting out when you were younger, how did you find your way and how did you start to build your identity as an artist?
1: Well, okay. So, at an early age, I... Kind of got the idea that people took a liking to how I drew things. Um, throughout elementary school, I did okay um, education wise. And when I got to junior high school, everything kind of changed. This is a very long way of telling you that when I was 30, I found out I was dyslexic. I didn't know that back then, but I went into grade eight and all of a sudden you had different teachers for different subjects. And. All through elementary school, there was one teacher a day, and usually, if I lucked out that year with a good teacher, in hindsight, I realized that I was quite a clever lad, <laughs> because I would figure out a way to become liked by the teacher, or a teacher's pet, or something, so that if I had trouble with something, I would just ask them to explain it to me, and they usually would, and that's how I learned things so when I got to junior high school, well, nobody else seems to be having trouble understanding this. What are you, stupid? And uh, by the beginning of grade 11, I just left school. I just walked out. It was too much. I wasn't learning anything. I wasn't retaining anything. And I walked home, and my father was there, and he said, what the hell are you doing here? And <laughs> I said, well, I'm just not learning anything at school. I think I'd learn more out in the world and he said well I wish I could disagree with you but <laughs> good luck yeah he said and so I thought okay I'm on my own kind of now and you're gonna have to figure out how to make your way in the world and one thing that I knew I was kind of good at from summer camp was like arts and crafts kind of thing so back in the hippie days, you could do arts and crafts and you could sell them in little coffee houses and on consignment, <laughs> go back every week and see a few little pieces of jewelry that you made <laughs> it sold for $10 or something so that you'd have some money. Anyway, I kept on doing that and I got quite good at it. It kind of turned into a business and then I started doing little drawings and, and stuff and I, I don't know. I I should, I should include this line which I've given in so many interviews that my report cards were on the, my drawings were on the family refrigerator more often (laughs) than my report cards were. My report cards were never on the refrigerator because it was always just, well, average marks. (laughs) And that'll be part of another story in a few minutes. Um... My grandmother was very influential. She loved First Nations art, and she would take me on totem pole tours and take me to Emily Carr's house was small. And I just had so much influence growing up in Victoria. And then I discovered pop art. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, you can do that? And it's art. Awesome. And when I was maybe six years old or something, grade one, I guess, I was invited to a classmate's birthday party. It was a Saturday afternoon affair. I think it was for. Uh, the party started at twelve or something, and I was very excited. I think I got there quite at twelve. Just couldn't wait, and knocked on the front door, and the mother opened the door, and the first thing I saw was this giant console RCA color television huge playing cartoons I'd never seen a color TV before <laughs> and the, that those colors were so vibrant and they just kind of burnt into my retina and my whole life I've tried to recreate the glow of those colors from that RCA console TV at that little boy's birthday party, I remember nothing of the party, or who he really was, <laughs> or anything. I just remember that goddamn TV, how beautiful it was. Um, so I just rumbled through life. I didn't make much of myself. I got pretty good at drinking. Um, so I kind of guess I kind of stumbled through life a little bit. Um, and I bounced around when I was in my late teens. Um a couple of friends were moving to Montreal, and they said, Do "You want to come?" I said, "Sure." So we all hopped into a little tiny car, and we all moved to Montreal, and that was crazy. Um, lasted there a couple of years. Moved back to Victoria. lasted there about another year. I bounced sort of all over the place. I was in Montreal for a stretch, and which we just talked about, and then I. At nineteen, I'd done all of this before nineteen. So then, when I was nineteen, I kind of met this guy, who I had started having an affair, and he got offered a job in London, England, and uh, he wanted to take it. And he said, Do "You want to come?" And I said, "Well, I don't have enough money." And so he went off ahead and. I stayed behind and did an art show. I did my very first art show to try and make some money to join him in England. And it was called the Joe Average Forgery Show. I'd learned this technique in art class in grade 8 or something where you you used this... Um, I can't remember what it was called. It was this very toxic substance. <laughs> oh, my God, that came in these cans. But you would take color glossy magazine pages, and you would put place the image down onto a clean piece of paper, you would pour this liquid onto it, and then with a hard spoon or something you would start rubbing the back of the paper, and eventually it would transfer the ink. It's kind of like a giant silly putty thing, <laughs> but with harsh chemicals. Anyway, I did a series of these cool rubbings on top of each other. It was kind of a collage of rubber. Anyway, I did, and I called it the Joe Average Forgery Show, and I had rubber stamps made that said forgery, and rubber stamps, and Joe Average, so I did rubber stamp them all, and the show was a success, and I made enough money to go to England, and then when I got to England, and he picked me up at the airport, I could just see in his eyes that he'd met somebody else. And he had, and so I spent the next six months trying to raise enough money to get out of England. (laughs) And back to Canada, and I only made enough money to go as far as Toronto. And I went to Toronto, and my best friend had just moved there. And this couple that I knew and used to babysit for, they lived there. And so I ended up living in a room in their house with them and their kids. And one day I was sitting down at the restaurant where my friend Michael worked as a bartender. It was a gay owned and primarily staffed by gay people and staff at restaurant. And um, I'd go sit down at the bar and just chat with Michael and nurse a beer, because that's all I could really afford was like one beer. And one day, uh, Michael said to me, uh, didn't, could he, he said, could you make salads? And I said, I could try. Why? He says, the salad guy just quit. Now in this restaurant, they sort of were trying to be Lati Dah in this restaurant. In the middle of the restaurant was a little salad bar and the waiters would bring their salad bars there and then everyone would watch him make their salads kind of thing. It was kind of schmaltzy a little bit, but it worked. Anyway, so I did that for about six months and then the chef in the kitchen got hepatitis and they threw me in the kitchen cold turkey with his assistant and And then I learned how to cook, and I bounced around, and I cooked at that restaurant, and then I got poached and worked at another restaurant in Toronto, which was called The Fiesta. Now, The Fiesta was the art restaurant of Toronto, and it was right when MTV was starting, and if they were doing video interviews with the stars. They would usually do them at the Fiesta because, well, it was the arty place. Now, the cool thing about the Fiesta too, for me, is all of the art on the walls was by a collective group of artists that I had been enamored enamored by since I was a teenager. And they went by the name uh, General Idea. And so, and the pieces on the wall I was very familiar with because I had seen them in magazines before, and so I was very excited to work there. Anyway, I think I'm going off track. Of no, go what? everywhere. Go everywhere. Go everywhere. Okay. <laughs> well, I, 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 I promise you, it is ending up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough. Yeah. Anyway, so I hung out, and it was the it was the artsy place to hang out, and and whatnot. And I met so many cool people through there, and cooked for some. I cooked for Brian Ferry. I cooked for the Rolling Stones. I I cooked for so many cool people. I didn't get to meet all of them because you know I'm the one in back in the kitchen, <laughs> but it was very cool. Um, Catherine O'Hara's. Sister, Mary Margaret O'Hara, was a waitress there, Oh wow. and she's turned out to be an incredible famous singer, and um, uh, Carol Pope from Canada's punk rock group Rough Trade, who was very popular at the time. She was an out lesbian. Her brother Howard, who was like the cutest boy on the planet, <laughs> uh, was a waiter at the fiesta, so many cool people worked at the Fiesta and went on to awesome careers in the arts. So, um, I can't remember why, but I decided I'd had enough of Toronto. I, I never felt really comfortable there. I always felt like I was a guest trying to mind their P's and Q's. I just never really felt like I fit in in Toronto. And so I was out here for a visit in Vancouver, and I was at a friend's place here in the West End. And I'd been here for a couple of weeks, and it was the day that I was to fly back to Toronto. And so I was at the bus stop on Davie Street, waiting for the airporter bus to come and pick me up. And I could see it coming up the hill, it's coming closer and closer, and my little brain started working. And it knew it was supposed to pick me up there, and it it started to slow down, and I waved it on, and I thought, I can't go back to Toronto. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I feel most comfortable. This is where, if I ever do anything with my art, this is where I will have a fighting chance, I thought. And then I thought, wait, what are you talking about? You're not doing anything. Anyway, but I remember thinking that, and so I waved the bus on. And um, met a nice guy here, fell in love. uh, And one sunny day, I was walking down Pendo Street, which is sort of Gastown adjacent here in Vancouver. And I walked past a very old hotel. I had one of those cool old neon signs. And it was called the Niagara Hotel. It was on West Pender. Kind of in a weird little area. Anyway, at the bottom of the hotel, there was a little cafe. And it was a Sunday morning. It was about 11.45 on a s- Saturday morning, sorry. And I was walking by. It was very sunny and stuff. And the door was propped open. And I kind of looked inside. I was just poking my head in. There was a guy behind the bar, and he says, oh, we're closed. We're not open for another 15 minutes. And I said, oh, I said, that's cool. I I just want to know who in here has been to the Fiesta in Toronto. And he said, why? I said, this place looks identical to the Fiesta. And he said, how do you know the Fiesta? I said, I was the cook there. And he said, do you need a job? I said, why? He said, our cook just walked out. And he said, I went, ah, show me the kitchen. And then I ended up working there for three years. But wha- and it was turned out to be the cool rock and roll place of Vancouver. So many cool artists. Richard Attila Lukacs, uh, Jan Wade. So many of the young romantics from back in the 80s were all waitresses or waiters there. Um, and I got a show at a little tiny gal. I got invited to be part of a show At a little tiny gallery right around the corner from there. And gosh, I can't remember the name of the gallery. Damn it. Anyway, it's a little group show um, that got a lot of attention from the press. And one of the reasons it got attention is... Oh dear, I'm forgetting another name. Hopefully it'll come back to me before the end of this podcast. So I'm at work at the Fiesta one day, and this artist that I know comes running, and he goes, Oh my God, person's name, who I can't remember, (laughs) just bought your painting from your show. And I was like, who is that? He says, are you kidding? This guy has the biggest collection of world artists in town. He he just bought an Eve Klein for like $20,000 from Christie's. I went, holy crap. Anyway, so Joe Average got his first bit of press. And the three artists that were most impressive at that show were myself, Jan Wade, and Jim Cummings. Jim Cummings also goes by the name I Brain Eater. He's very popular, well was, still is, a popular artist in Vancouver, and a great rock and roller. <laughs> that just sounded like an old man. He's a rock and roller. He's a rock and roll guy. Um, anyway, we were the three J's, the Joe, the Jan, and the Jim. And we were Vancouver's little darlings for a brief period of time. Anyway, that sort of started me thinking, okay, I can do this, I think. Um, but I have a, something to tell you how that kind of what really set me in the direction of where I am. So when I was 27 years old, I was diagnosed with HIV. And at the time, I was just fine. There was no problems or anything. But by the time I reached 30, I'd gone down from like 130 pounds to 110 pounds. My helper cells were almost all gone, opportunistic infections were starting to happen in my body, and I had AIDS. Uh, and I was like, oh, fuck me. And I said to the doctor, what the hell do I do now? And he said, well, I would get my affairs in order if I were you. And I said, well, what are we talking here? He said, well, he says, we don't really know, but six months maybe? And so I thought to myself, well if I only have six months left to live how do I want to spend this? Now I had left the, Mo- the Montgomery Cafe which was the cafe underneath the Sorry, it was the Montgomery Hotel, right next door to the Niagara Hotel. I got that confused. I'm old, people. Forgive me. (laughs) My brain plays tricks on me. Anyway, um, uh, what was I saying? Uh,
0: Mr. Producer? I was just laughing at that. (laughs) Um, This will happen momentarily.
1: Right after your diagnosis. Oh, yeah. Right after my diagnosis. So, yeah, I was doing pretty good. And then three years later, my helper cells went away and I got AIDS. Anyways yeah, so what do I want to do for the next six months? And I had left the restaurant, and I was on unemployment at that time. I can't remember why I left the restaurant. I think I was just tired of smelling like garlic and onions and deep (laughs) fryer oil again. I was happy when I hung up my apron in Toronto. I thought, here I am again, doing this again. Yuck. Anyway, I was good at it, but it was a thankless job. Anyway... Uh, I was on unemployment when I found out that I had full blown AIDS. So I thought, well, unemployment is so demeaning. I don't know how it is now, but you used to have to go down and have an appointment and meet with a caseworker, like every couple of weeks or something. And why haven't you been? Uh, anyway, it was always so demeaning, and it, I thought this will surely not make me want to stay alive. I need something that's going to make me want to live. And I thought, well, the only thing that you're halfway good at is art. And I didn't even know if people would want it or buy it. I knew that that one guy bought it, but who knows, maybe he was a bit crazy. (laughs) Anyway, so that was when I challenged myself to see if I could live off of my art. This, it's now 38 years later. Uh, There's been some ups and downs along the way. Um, I'll back up a little bit. I'll give you more. So when I first started in that that one little show in my little apartment, I didn't even talk about that. So I made the decision to survive as an artist. So... I just started having shows out of my apartment and calling everybody that I knew and saying, come on over. Now, at that time, my rent was $198 a month. And so every one of my drawings was $198. (laughs) So if I sold one, I could pay my rent. And I thought that's how I should do it. And so I called up a bunch of people and they came over and... It was a pretty successful show. I sold quite a few pieces and I pay my rent for the year and that was cool. I thought, okay, this is working. And then I got approached or somebody said, Have you donated anything to the oh, come on now. The Hadassah Bazaar. I don't know if it's still around, but it was a big fundraiser in the Jewish community here. Um where people would sell stuff. And I'm not quite sure what the money benefited, but I'd heard of it. And so I donated a piece of my art, in there, and it sold. And I made money. Now, when I was a kid, I loved watching telethons, like jailer's telethons, because I loved watching that little banner going across the bottom of the screen saying, Mr. and Mrs. Smith just donated $50. And I thought, I wish I could donate something, because I'm a giver, you know. But I didn't have any money to give. But when I found out that my art could make money to give to people, I thought, okay, this is good. And I didn't overdo it, but any time I was asked, I would always donate art to causes. Causes that meant something to me, you know? So I I never learned the word no. (laughs) This was my problem. At one point... Some uh, journalist wrote, and it was probably true too, too at the time, that I had given away more more art than I had made. I had given away more in value than I'd earned. The press ran without for years. Anyway, uh, is this kind of answering your question? Oh, yeah. Oh, ready? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, well, it just kept on going and going and going. And then in 1991, a fellow, somebody, I can't remember who right now, somebody I knew in the gay community here in Vancouver, said, hey, Joe, there is this contest I think you should enter. Is there, it, It's a contest for a poster for a National AIDS Week for Canada. No one had done anything like that before. So I created a little painting, and I submitted it, um, and it won. And uh, Gerda Natitian, who was the, was the wife of Raymond Natitian, who was the Governor General of Canada, who lives at Rideau Hall in Ottawa, she flew out to present this to... The well, her big platform was AIDS. She was very passionate about helping as much as she could with HIV and AIDS. Oh, getting clamped thinking about her. Um, so... Uh, so she flew out and helped uh, unveil this to the press. And so there's a big press conference at the Vancouver Art Gallery here. I'm just going to take a moment. Oh yeah, take your time. Draw, draw my eyes a little bit. She means a lot to me. So we did it. And I said, how did we do afterwards? And she said, you were fantastic. Now, so here I am with the wife of the Governor General of Canada flanked on either side by fully dressed Mounties. <laughs> Little old me with a bank of press in front of me. I had never done any shit like that before. Anyway, so Goethe and I became friends at that moment. And six months later, I got a very embossed beautiful envelope in the mail from Rideau Hall inviting, telling me that I was one, in, one of 50 Canadians that have been selected to be invited to a lunch at Rideau Hall to meet Prince Charles and Princess Diana. This is where I'm going to really start to cry. Um, so I got to do that. I didn't have enough money to go, so here I am crying again. My community uh, did a fundraiser. Oh, good Lord. One minute. Oh, no problem. So my community did a fundraiser and raised enough money so that I could fly to Ottawa. So, <laughs> this will help. So, word got out. Uh, well, the Victoria, no, the Vancouver Sun, I think, or P- Vancouver, whatever, one of the newspapers got wind of this and did a little article in the paper saying Princess Diana to lunch with Joe Average. <laughs> now, nobody knew who the Hell, Joe <laughs> Average was at that point. So it was a good headline. And interestingly, it was interesting enough that the Associated Press picked it up and it went worldwide. Now, within seconds, CBC Radio called me on the phone and said, Wanted to do a live interview. And I said, Sure, never done one of those before. And so I'm chatting on the phone live doing a live radio interview with this guy and he says, so tell me what does a Joe Average (laughs) wear to meet a princess? I said, well that is a very good question. I am going over to a friend's place this (laughs) afternoon to try on a Hugo Boss suit. (coughs) We chatted more and it was a good little interview. And then a few days later, I'm I'm uh, at the airport here in Vancouver. And I go up to the ticket counter with my ticket. Oh, excuse me. And I hand it to the ticket agent lady. And she takes it and she looks at it and she starts taping in stuff. And then she stops taping and she looks at me and she looks at me. And she goes, <laughs> you're that guy that's going for lunch with Princess Diana, aren't you? I said yes, and she went take two, two, two. She goes, "You're now going first class. Have an awesome trip." And I was like, "Oh my god, thank you so much!" So I got flown first class to Ottawa, and then I arrived there the night before, and checked into this little Airbnb I uh, was staying at, and that Sven Robinson recommended <laughs> to me of all people, because he'd stayed there a few times. uh Anyway, uh, gosh, I can't remember. She used to be the lead anchor for CBC television news. Can't remember her name, damn it. Anyway, she got a hold of me at of, of this B&B and said, Can we film you live in front of Rideau Hall tomorrow morning at 7 a.m.? I went, sure. So at 7 a.m., this limousine came and picked me up or something, and drove me to the front grounds of Rideau Hall this frosty fall morning with a butt in my ear, talking to this woman in Toronto. <laughs> and then I drove back to the hotel motel and then waited till noon so I could go back and do this. So I'm at the Rideau Hall and there's a, 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 there's a lot of protocols that you've got to go through and The first one is you get announced. So you're in a lineup and somebody announces your name and you go out and then you meet Prince Charles and then the Governor General and then Princess Diana and then Gerdinand Titian. So they call my name and I meet Prince Charles and (laughs) I say something appropriate and (laughs) the same with... (laughs) A uh, Raymond edition. And then I get to Princess Diana and she goes, is this the hero bar suit? And I went, oh. I said, it didn't fit. This is an Armani. Do I look okay? And she went, you look fabulous. She said to me, I just about fainted on the spot. <laughs> I looked at Gerda, and she went, <laughs> she said, Ross, for, for those of you who can't see, she gave me a little nod and a wink. Um, so that was awesome. So we all went into this beautiful room for this lunch that was so elaborate. and There was more plates and silverware for each person than I'd ever seen. I said, what did this plate do? What does that fork do? What does that 20th knife do? Anyway, the company I was in there, Uh Moishe Safdie, Moishe um David Suzuki. I mean, half of the guests were people in architecture and aviation. All the stuff the prince was interested in. The other half were people in AIDS research, in the ballet. Like, all the ballet stars of Canada, there. I mean, it was the who's who of Canada. And then me, because I was nobody then. There was the who's who, 49 famous people, and me. So we had a fabulous lunch, and then we were all invited into a neighboring room, which is the tent room, which is this grand room with, it's called a tent room because there are bolts of damask something all from the ceiling down. It's the most stunning room with canvases, I would say a good 20 feet high of past governor generals that had in their full 20 foot high full length oil painting portraits and it was awesome and so of course half the room swarmed around princess diane and the other half the room swarmed around prince charles and i just went to the corner of the room and i just thought look at where you are joe average i said to myself look at what you've done i just i just i just want to just take it all in and Gerda came over to me and she said, So, are you having fun yet? And I said, Are you kidding? I said, This is the best day ever. I said, How did Princess Diana know about the suit? And she said, Are you kidding? We clipped all the clippings and taped all the things and we gave them to all her people before she even got here. (laughs) Anyway, she she put her arm out. She said, Come with me. Princess wants to talk with you. (laughs) She wants to meet you. And so... Gerda elbowed her way through the crowd because it was her house. (laughs) (laughs) And she made a little path and she introduced me to Princess Diana and I got to sit down and chat with her for 10 minutes. It was so surreal. I just stared at her skin and I went, that's what alabaster skin looks like. I just kept thinking that. And I was so nervous. I didn't know, what do you do when you're sitting in front of a princess? And I said, you must be missing your children. Well, she just started to cry, and then I started to cry. And then we were like, okay, we're good. And then I thanked her so much for everything that she'd done, for the fight for HIV, and she thanked me. And it was awesome. Anyway, um, so that was in the... That was like 19, it was right around 1990, I guess. Anyway, then I got asked to create the image for the 11th International Conference on AIDS. Um, About four years later. Now, it was 91, I met the princess. That fabulous moment of my life. Um so in 1995 maybe 94 I got approached by the organizers of the 11th International Conference on AIDS they approached me uh to commission me to create an image for the event um no, this is. They asked me two years before the event even started, and the reason for that was is because they needed to advertise the event at the year before's um, conference, which I think was in Seoul, Korea, or something. Like, I think it was in or somewhere in Asia. Anyway, so they had to advertise it so that everyone would know where to go next year. You know, um, so. My image literally went around the world. That was what put me on the map, was the one world, one hope image. Um, (laughs) At one of my shows, uh, this fellow came up to me and he, he handed me an envelope, and there was a photograph inside, and there was a picture of this little... Well, I'll explain. So he said him and his boyfriend were traveling through India and they were driving down a road in the middle of nowhere. He said, literally, there was no civilization for hundreds of miles in any direction around us. And we're driving down the road and there's this little old lady with a little cart on the side of the road with T-shirts that she's trying to sell. And we screeched to a stop because right in the front was your image. And it was One World, One Hope. She had hand-embroidered it on this T-shirt and embroidered the words One World, One Hope in some weird font. I don't know what the hell kind of font it was. But they took a picture of it. And my image inspired a little old lady in the middle of nowhere in India to embroider a T-shirt. Anyway, I figured, okay, now I've made it. This is awesome. So... I guess that's kind of my art story, and I've just been running with it ever since. Did that? Did I answer that okay? Oh, absolutely! Awesome. Okay, next. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's so well, and it's interesting too to hear that. Well, I mean, the shock of because uh, I'm 26, so the the shock of hearing um, when you're 27, you got about six months. So, you know, get your affairs in order. think
1: about this. I've had HIV longer than you've been alive. Mm -hmm. And for more than half my life. I've been HIV longer than I haven't. Which is kind of a clusterfuck to think of when you think of it in your head. (laughs) Anyway. But
0: it's just amazing at... um, Why
1: do I need glasses? And then how
0: your art gets intertwined into that story. About the fact that you're your big piece for that conference is as you said that's that's what kind of put you to that put you to that level.
1: Yeah, and there's a sort of an interesting connection between the 1991 piece that I did for the uh, uh AIDS awareness week poster for Canada. Um the image I did for that was a little gouache painting. G- Gouaches are very sort of thick opaque kind of water-based paint. Um, Anyway, it was a little like five-inch by five-inch thing that they used. Anyway, so when I was asked, when I was commissioned to do the image for the AIDS conference, I redid that same image. Not out of laziness, but out of, (laughs) out of, I was never, when I submitted it, I thought you could do better <laughs> I mean I wasn't quite all the way happy with it when I submitted it even though they liked it I wasn't all the way happy with it and in the five years that it had been since I'd painted that I'd figured out how to use oil paints and so uh, this is a great opportunity for me to do a new version of it um, with the skills that I picked up along the way, and so what the original was just sort of faces overlapping, like showing that there are different ethnicities and genders and stuff, and they were just kind of overlapping, and I'd put patterns of things in to make it eye-catching and stuff. I found that all to be too busy, so... When I did it, I stripped everything back and I turned it more into a stained glass effect thing, which I thought really worked well with this conference because for me personally, I chose the stained glass kind well, I've been working around and I've been playing around with I had been to New York, and I'd been—I went to some huge cathedral there, and they had these amazing stained glass windows, which were kind of the modern-day equivalent of that RCA console TV I saw when I was a kid. The colors just were sensational, and each little cell—like when I say cell, I mean the pieces of glass that each piece of lead. Goes around to keep them together. Some of those pieces of glass were ombre glasses, like that went from dark to light. And I was like, this is amazing. So when I got back to Vancouver, I started trying to paint like that because I wanted, I thought that is a great way to. So, what I do if there was a yellow, I would use orange as its neighboring color. So I would outline everything in its neighboring color to accentuate that color, which created that RCA console TV glow I'd been spending my tri- life trying to create, and I figured it out from doing that canvas. So I figured everything out on that One World, One Hope canvas and how, how my paintings were going to look for the rest of my career. Um, there was more to this. Come on, brain, think, um that might might have been all there was to that i don't know i'm old people and every now and then my i call it memo memo pause (laughs) all of a sudden my brain goes blank and i have to say what was i just talking about i'm that guy now happens to
0: me all the time it's okay
1: Ah, you young especially fool.
0: especially when I hit record, I'm, <laughs> oh I'm really interesting God. off the air. Then as soon as the as soon as the recording starts, I'm like, oh, what am I doing again?
1: Okay, so now I'll ask you again. <laughs> don't feel I, bad. Yeah, that's all good. Did I answer whatever you asked me? Okay, <laughs> if I finished,
0: yeah, you did. <laughs>
1: okay, good. Definitely. Any other questions? <laughs> I was gonna say, I
0: you know, I don't know. I mean, I just really, I'm really interested in the in the fact that how it how it just as you described, it all comes full circle Mm. and it was you spent your life trying to recreate what had inspired you so deeply as a child yes and doing it on a different medium you you were looking at a television screen and then to create that with with your hands on a piece of canvas
1: yeah
0: I mean that's because I can, I can feel the uh, emotion when you tell. I can, I can yeah. feel. Like I know, I know <laughs> it was what so you were strong. feeling. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And the fact that that piece is what kind of came. It, it just, it all yeah. is very poetic in that way. How it all tied together. Then yeah. you it, would go on. I mean, really that is. was many years ago. Now,
1: yeah, it right? really is. And before you leave, I'm giving you a jigsaw puzzle of that image.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Yes, I appreciate that.
1: I'm now. Making products and <laughs> and helping um, charities with all the products that I do. So percentages of this particular jigsaw puzzle benefits PAL, which is an acronym for a per- the Performing Artists Lodge. And it's a building here in Vancouver that houses senior performing artists which I remember when they opened, I donated art to them to brighten the halls. I thought, I'm probably going to end up living here one day. (laughs) Brighten this place up. So our latest thing is is benefiting them. Um, We did some face masks uh, when the the pandemic started, and the face masks benefited um, BC Children's Hospital. We ended up cutting them a check in the end for about 15 grand, which was awesome. Um, and we've got more puzzles coming down the pike. The next one, which is kind of being held up a little bit because my business partner has factories in China, but China's not writing anything in or out of China right now. And so it's kind of screwed up and he's trying to make factories in Mexico. I don't know. It's not my end of the business. I just sit here and wait to be told what to do next. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so the next one coming down the pike is going to benefit the Covenant House, which is really special to me because I was kicked out of the house for being a little gay boy when I was young, too. So I had to forge for myself on the streets and stuff. So I know how hard it is for for gay kids or any kids who uh, find themselves homeless, you know. So I'm really looking forward to this, and they're really excited that I'm coming on board to help them. This year, I was awarded the Order of British Columbia, which is the highest honor a citizen can get in this goddamn province. And I got to, I got it along with Miss Bonnie Henry, and I got to meet Bonnie Henry. (laughs) I met so many cool people that day. It was really cool. Last year's ceremony was canceled because of COVID. So this year they had to join two years together. So we were only allowed to bring one guest each. And I was like, oh, no, that is not going to happen. Because I'm from Victoria, and that's where I go to get the award, right? So through the generosity of a very good and wealthy friend of mine... (laughs) The moment he heard I was going getting the award, I, I was talking with his. I was telling his partner on the phone, and he over on the speakerphone. He said, "We're renting you a suite at the Empress." <laughs> he screams, and so we were in conversations about that. And I said, "I said to him, I said, 'Cause Spencer used to be in the restaurant industry, and he knows tons of people." And I said, Spencer do you know anybody in Victoria that would?" let me have their restaurant for a night cuz <laughs> i want to do a little party for the people in victoria that just have to be there like the people that made that forged me who into who i was like for example one of my art teachers who m- she nominated me 20 years ago for an RCA award now This is a very huge award. And you only get this award if somebody who is already a member nominates you. And it's the Royal Canadian Artist Award. So I'm in the company of the Group of Seven and Jack Shadbolt and all those people. Anyway, so she... I'll tell you about the dinner party. So at that dinner party was her, um, a man named Tom Palfrey who was the first, him and his partner, (sighs) just lost the other time. There were two Toms and they were the first gay couple I ever met as a young gay teenager. I didn't even know you could even do that. (laughs) I didn't even know that was possible. And over the years they were so, Nurturing with me, they helped me so much. And, uh, and there was a woman th- that I invited who I have always called my my, uh, my not artificial what <laughs> you call. She was kind of like a mother to me. My mother didn't do it; wasn't a very good job at being a mother, but she was very helpful. And she trusted me with her kids. I used to babysit her kids, and then. Her and her husband opened a vintage clothing store in Victoria and they made me manager of it. And I was really good with vintage stuff and I had worked with it before. Anyway, they were she was there. And so many people that had just sort of sort of let me know it was okay to be me and guided me through my life were there to witness me having the, the order of BC Pin on my lapel. So it was the night after. And we secured the library bar at the Empress Hotel. We had the room to ourselves, full service dinner, full menu. It was awesome. (laughs) And for the three days I was at the Empress, well, my friend Susan Gomez, who used to be the general manager of the Pan Pacific, when she heard I was going, she called up her friend, who's the GM of the Empress, and said, you better upgrade this guy. So when I got there, it was, Welcome to the Empress, Mr. Average. And for a whole three days there, it was like, Congratulations on your award, Mr. Average. Just, were you guys briefed about me or something? (laughs) Anyway, I had the most wonderful time. I just had to throw that in because it's the most exciting cherry on top right now for me is this award. And I would show you my lapel pin, but I've already lost it. (laughs) (laughs) but it's okay I was talking to my friend Lauren who used to be in politics here he was a MLA or something Um, he said I always lose mine just you can order more so I've just ordered six so I can so I can put them on the lapel this is how you lose it you take off one you put it on another and uh, anyway so I've ordered six more you just have to prove that you actually did win one which is not hard to do and um, so I'm gonna, they're going to come and I'm going to put them on every suit I have without taking them off again. Because people say, why are you wearing your pin? I said, because I'm afraid of losing it. And the moment I did wear it, I lost it. So, yeah.
0: That's a good thing. Once you're in the club, you're in the club.
1: Once you're in the club, you're in the club. I know. I know a few people. My, my overseeing doctor, Julio Montaner, who with... Out question is the leading expert on AIDS and AIDS research in Canada. I'm very fortunate that he has been in my driver's seat since the beginning. Um, he's not my GP. He doesn't do that, but he's a specialist. Anyway, he always wears his. And my friend Jim Burns, who's an awesome musician here in Vancouver, when, it, when we go out occasionally, sometimes together, and he's always wearing his... And so when I got, they both called me and said, welcome to the club. <laughs> so that felt kind of cool. Yeah.
0: And actually, one thing that I want to end with, you've yeah. done a, a very good job at, at discussing it already, but I figure for, for uh, closing remarks, mm-hmm. what would you say to you know, young people getting started in their life or just kind of trying to find a footing, what wisdom would you impart on them?
1: Okay, this sounds simplistic, but it really is the basis of it. Figure out what you were great at when you were a kid, and then expand on that. Because you know what you want to be when you're really young, and then society starts mucking things about and tells you that you can't be that, or you have to be this, or you really should do that, not that. And then you end up living a life that you're not comfortable in. So I know this term is being thrown around a lot lately. And I'm all for it, which is be your authentic self. Now, this just does not singularly apply to your gender or your sexuality or anything. It's just about... Being who you wanted to be ever since you were a little kid. (laughs) Like, I don't know, if you want to be a fireman, explore being a fireman. (laughs) It's probably the job that will give you the most satisfaction in your life. Um, There's just one other... I promise I won't be preachy, but whenever I get a chance to speak publicly, especially to young kids, I just want to tell you to please when it comes to sex. AIDS is not over. Please continue to have safe sex. I know that AIDS isn't in the news anymore, and it doesn't mean that it's over. It means that there's not as many sensational stories that the newscasters can tell about it. It's still something that, I'm living with, lots of people that I know are living with, you can live a long life with AIDS or HIV, but let me tell you something. It is not a piece of cake living with HIV. There are a lot of meds involved. There are a lot of doctor's visits involved. There are a lot of side effects you have to wade your way through. It ain't no fucking piece of pie. So... Stay safe and enjoy your life and be your authentic self. The end.